Momentum Volleyball is the online Canadian hub for volleyball storytelling, reporting, and event coverage, allowing content creators to connect with fans, coaches, and players. Momentum is the hub for athletes, coaches, and fans to find free and paid volleyball content. And we are proud to be the voice of Canadian volleyball around the world. Head to MomentumVolleyball.ca to subscribe for free and get access to exclusive content and all your Canadian volleyball updates. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Finally, finally, we got him. We reached out. He's been named in, in dozens and dozens of stories over the short history of Passing Dimes, but we got him. So today's guest is an alumni of Red Deer, and he's played at the University of Alberta, where he's a CIS champion, he went on to play for Team Canada, and has over 11 years of pro experience, and now he's the head coach of the St. Trojans. Please welcome to the show, fan-demanded Dallas Sunius. Dallas, thanks for doing this, man. Thank you so much for having me. I've been waiting, and I've been a little buttered. Honest, Josh, because like I've been listening for years, and I'm like all these guys that I'm down with are on the show. I'm my phone's not ringing, so I'm like okay, I guess maybe there's some beef that I don't know about. <laughs> but uh, hey, here we are. I'm very happy to be here. Well, I do have to confirm one story as we're getting going here, because I think the one that pushed me over the edge, and really it was just a nice reminder, because you have been name dropped, but a uh, friend of the show, Chris Voth, mentioned he's growing up in, in that Winnipeg area, and he's a ball boy at a tournament, and I guess you knew him through his sister, or you just saw him around, he's always in the gym, and you're talking to him mid-game, like he's throwing you a ball to serve, and you're going, see that Voth, if you just stay high and hard, like they can't touch it, these are the shots you need to work on, and there's teenage Voth being like, Dal, can you like dial in here, can you focus a little bit, like you're the one playing the game, talking to the ball boy during the game do you remember these stories and, and how often were these happening for you i do remember that uh i don't know how often it was i don't know if that was a common thing but uh <laughs> i mean i knew his sister he'd actually driven myself and his sister once uh home from something or other when he he must have been like 16 she must have been like 19 or something i don't know uh so I, i'd met him previously uh, it wasn't just like I was talking to some, I guess it was like I was just talking to some kid, but uh, I knew he was going to be really good at the sport already. Um, and he's just, he had good vibes, you know, but I, I wouldn't say that I talked to, 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 the, to the volunteers all the time. Actually, that's a lie. I totally do. I can't, I can't say I don't, but you got to enjoy your work, man. Like the game is so serious. Uh, I'm about to go on a tangent, but check it out. Like every game you play with the national team is like playoffs. Uh, there is no regular season. You know, you train all summer. And then I remember some summers we would have like five games. And that's it. So those games are serious, even if they mean nothing at all in terms of ranking or whatever. So the pressure is always there. There's always people watching. So you have to find ways to enjoy yourself and keep yourself at like a a steady amount of uh, physical arousal. You know what I mean? If you get too tight, you're going to play like garbage. If you get way too low, you'll also play garbage. But like, if I'm in a tight spot, got to do something to like get my mind off of what it, what, whatever's keeping me tight. You know what I mean? So I was lucky. So I very much appreciate boss being there so I can like, you know, offload some of whatever was on me at that time. Now, did you feel the need to ever explain this to either 
teammates or coaches because i think as an outsider sometimes people think like this this joyful attitude shows that you're not engaged or you're not in a battle where for you you're explaining this and it makes a lot of sense that you want to you want to have joy when you're playing it is a competitive thing but like when you're because when i remember whenever canada played in toronto like you're the first guy in autograph alley you're the one talking to the volunteers like you are being like this outgoing guy and kind of building the sport but did, did anyone at team canada ever see an issue with it or because you can explain it so well that it was just understood that that's that's how you want to behave and you're still a professional if you do these things. Well, there's a couple of things there worth mentioning, and I hope I don't forget once I start talking. <laughs> so uh, when I coach now, I, explain, I, I draw a graph about the arousal bell curve. It's a bell curve. And right in the middle is where you play great. Below that, if you're not stimulated enough, you're not going to play good. If you're overstimulated, then your performance goes down as well. And I, like the reason I explain it to college kids and university kids is because they're always so amped up before the game. For a lot of them, the, the hitting warm-up matters more than the game. So by the time the game happens, their systems are depleted. So whatever they've depleted in the warm-up, they won't have in the fifth set. You know what I mean? So I try to explain that. But that's hard to explain to like a 19-year-old dude when there's girls in the gym. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Uh, but in terms of enjoying myself, I, I joined the team when I was 18 and we had a lot of players who had been there for like 10 years. And right away, what I noticed, like I come in the gym, like very serious, like, okay, we're going to work, we're going to do this, you know, this is a job. And what I saw is all these guys that I had looked up to for so long were the goofiest dudes you'd ever meet. Uh, and they had as much fun as they could until it was time to do the work. And then they were friggin' professionals. Like they did, just did the work. And I noticed they found every opportunity, opportunity they could to enjoy themselves when it didn't take away from the work. Uh, so I tried to do that myself. Yeah, that's that's awesome to hear. So I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are a big fan of yours, but maybe for the others who, who just haven't followed your career as closely, maybe just set the scene for it. So when did you get switched on to volleyball? Like, where did you grow up? And what was kind of your first experience either with a, a school team, a gym coach, a club coach? Like, how did you kind of get into our sport and follow it all the way through to your career? I played everything, like all sports. I'm super lucky that my parents put myself and my brother in every sport. Uh, when we were young, I remember one time I was on like eight teams at one time. So my poor mom just like ripping me and my brother from practice to practice to practice. Um, so we grew up in Red Deer, Alberta. And uh, what happened to my recollection is in grade nine, you go to a new high school and uh, I'm, I'm predominantly thinking I'm a basketball player at this point. My brother did play basketball. I was his little brother. So I'm like, just doing that. I get to high school and I have these friends and uh, they're like, Hey, play volleyball. I'm like, what are you talking about, bro? I'm a baller out here. You know, this is goofy. We have white balls back in the day, you know, it's like this silly white ball. I'm like, I, ha I got a basketball like, in the school. You know what I'm saying? Trying to cross people up. They're like, Hey, Volleyball season, play it because, like, you need to keep in shape for basketball season. I'm like, I right, let me try this. So I go to this first tryout, and I don't care, really. I'm there to be with my buds. Uh, 
And the first thing that I remember, it probably wasn't the first thing we did, but I remember the hitting line. Coach was like throwing balls over the whatever, over the net, and then you pass it. Someone sets it, you hit it. Very simple. The first time the coach threw the ball over the net, I was not paying attention at all. I was talking to the fellas. Legitimately, the ball came over and like hit me in the head. Um, and all my dudes are obviously clowning me because I just got hit in the head with the ball. Really competitive. So I'm like, well, that's not happening again. Mm. I pick up the ball, I go to the back of the line, and I'm like laser focused now, like Tyson going in the ring. You know what I'm saying? Supreme focus. I get to the front of the line. Coach says my name. I'm ready, baby. I'm out there. This is an audio medium. No one can see this, but just for you, Josh. I'm out here like this, right? Because I see guys doing this, their arms out. Like this seems right. So I, I, bump the ball over to the center. Never really done this. I'm like, okay, this is going well. And then I swing out here. You know what I'm saying? I go to take my approach and I jump so high. Josh, I don't know if you know that about me. But when, at, once upon a time, 20 years ago, you boy used to jump. So I'm up there so high in my mind. Um, and I kind of catch glimpses of the guys. I'm like, yo, what's up now? The guy sets the ball. And I swing as hard as I can. Never swung at a volleyball really before. And my full, like, Pac-Man in the air, you know, because I'm athletic at this point, young, sinewy, and completely missed the ball. The ball just floats by me. So then I go and grab the ball after that. I get the back of the line. Again, I'm being clowned. And the next time I hit the ball. And then the next time after that, I hit the ball. And it got better and better. And I think that introduction to the game was why I enjoyed it so much because I was so bad. It was terrible, Josh. Like, I was athletic, but I, I really had to work at it. So I, and, and, and volleyball is a much more communal game than the other major sports I find in North America. I, I think that's why it's so popular on so many First Nations. It's, it's a communal game. Whereas basketball, one dude can take over game really baseball is pretty individual when it comes down to it volleyball you need everybody you know what i'm saying so i think this is why i started in the game so i played on the high school team enjoyed it uh after that someone told me there was club volleyball so i tried out for that i think i was one of the last guys to make the team i i think early on i would make teams because i was athletic and tall not because I was skilled, because I wasn't. And then that summer, I found out there was a provincial team, and I absolutely was the last guy, like redshirt, on that team that they took. And I was so ecstatic just to have, like, the Team Alberta shirt. You know what I mean? Because, like, you go to club tournaments, and there's all these big dogs wearing their Team Alberta shirt. Like, yo, someday, I don't know, maybe. So, I, I, yeah, I got the shirt. And actually, Sean Sky. Tells a good story about when I made the team. There was a lot of inappropriate language, but I was just so excited to make the team when he told me. I may have cursed at him several times. Uh, but yeah, and then that, that summer, I, I went from like the red shirt to like the last game I was starting. So that, that, was, that was my first year with volleyball. 
Awesome. Awesome. And then to jump into the club scene, we just had uh, James Battiston from Toronto here. He remembers playing with a really good Scarborough Falcons team, but they met in a national final against you. And he said the first set that uh, he feels like they, it was a really tight one, like maybe a 26, 24. And then he claims that they got absolutely slapped in the second set. And the credit he gives is we got the wrong rotation with Dallas and he was hitting against this mighty might left side and just going over top of them every time. So he, he said the third was tighter, but it was because they matched up like I think a six, four left side. And then baddies, I think six, eight is the middle. But do you remember getting that much attention in club volleyball where like the other coaches being like, where, what rotation are they starting this kid in? Because if we don't have somebody in front of him, he's just going to tee off on balls. Like, do you remember like club being your ticket to the next level? Cause you were going to play on the national team at a, at a young age, or do you just remember being fun and better than everybody else? I remember, I remember that I, I jumped high, like probably as high as any, anybody that was at the time. And I remember it being a lot of fun. Um, I do remember that game because they won, as you as you know, we lost the national final. Uh, and I had a string of losing really tight games that really started to wear on me uh, up until like university when I finally won. won. Well, that's not strictly true. I didn't win a midget national championship. That was a lot of fun. But I think what, what Batty's talking about is um, Oh man, we're going to get real deep here. So, uh, my father is Nehiao, so he would say Cree. And my mother is Anishinaabe, so she would be Ojibwe. So, my father's people are from the middle of Saskatchewan. My, mother, my mother's people are from north of Toronto. So, I have a mix of those two things, making me like just as indigenous as is, is possible, basically. For generations in Canada, Indigenous kids were sent to residential schools. And a lot of awful things happened at these residential schools. Uh, my, my father went to a residential school. Uh, my mother, luckily, not so luckily, avoided residential school, but she was caught in something called the 60 scoop. So she was fostering the fostering the fostering. Uh, anyways, all their parents went to residential school and the generation behind and the generation behind for a long time. What I'm getting at is at these schools, they taught the kids not, they taught them their culture was wrong and evil. All their ancestors went to hell. They can't use their own language. Basically that they're not worth a lot. So I imagine that is terrible as a four or five, six year old kid. And then you go back home and you've lost all these communication skills. And you're like, okay, well, I'm going to raise a family and do the best I can. And then those kids have to go to residential school. And it's just doubled down on them, you know? So you get generations of this. And it bothers me to say, but a lot of young Indigenous kids, male or female, often feel like they don't deserve to make that shot. Like, so for example, my team, again, it's a communal sport. It wasn't just me. We have great players on that, on that team. When I got to a national final, I would often think, no, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if this is, it's just in the back of your mind that maybe you don't deserve it. So in my mind, looking back now that I'm older, 
I think there was a lot of that in the back of my mind. That they Scarborough, they're a great team. Do think we we should have won? And I, oh, this is so cocky to say, but I I put the loss on us more than them doing more. And that's so cocky, but that that's what I feel happened. Um, and if we fast forward, we can come back to like the career. But I remember there was a moment when I was playing in Korea where we were beating a team that I didn't think we were supposed to beat. And there was a scramble play and I made something happen that was athletic and we won the point and I could, I knew we were about to win this game. And then we ended up winning the game. And then I watched the match on TV that night and I saw the moment and I saw my face and I, I saw in my own face that I wasn't allowing myself to enjoy this moment. I was high, I was fighting it. And I realized at that moment, Dallas, you got to quit being so cold, Dallas. You got to knock that off. You deserve this as much as anybody. So from that point on, to what you were talking about earlier, I really started to enjoy my career more. Try to encourage people, try to encourage my own team, try to build the sport, as you were saying. But anyways, I had several national championships, big games where for whatever reason, I came in with that mindset. But after after that game in Korea, I got rid of I got I got rid of that. So sorry to take that into a different direction, but uh, that's I mean, it is it's pretty important that uh, uh, you know I, I let that be known. Yeah, no, for sure. And just to hop on that because we've had other high performers like uh, Melissa Himata Perez or Brandy Wilkerson, and they've mentioned. And I'm curious with you experiences this now as a coach and as a player, but. Do you think it does take a moment like that where you feel like you have confirmation that now you're worthy of feeling this way? Or or as Melissa put, I thought it was super interesting. And, and my guy, Garrett May, talks about this. Like, you don't need to see it to believe it sometimes. I think sometimes you need to believe stuff before it's going to happen. So it, it's interesting to hear your experience where you can like pick a moment where it happened. But uh, as an athlete and now as a coach, do you think you need that credibility that says, like, I won, therefore I'm good? Or can you build that up so when that, that tough moment happens, you can have confidence where... You, like you said, you haven't earned it before. You've lost some big games. Like, which one can kind of lead others now that you're working with younger athletes? Like, what would you encourage? I think both are great ways. One has to happen. Like, whatever happens first is fine. Like, I do know that uh, success loves trauma uh, often, which is too bad. But uh, people who have dealt with a lot of trauma in their lives, they they just keep pushing. You know, they, they find success often. I use the example, I've played with a lot of, with and against a lot of players from the Balkan states, like Serbians and Croatians. And these players just go for it. And from what I can gather from speaking with them, when they start training as young kids, it's not soft. Like the older players crush them for years and years and years and years before they have any success. So they're used to just fighting, 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 fighting. Um, and I guess that would be quote unquote their I mean, traumatic learning experience. Um, but if we take it back to Canadian players, I think sports psychology is something that you, that you can do to get players over that hump. 
Um, because of all the data, all the kind of starts in the mind, you know. Um, but to your point, or to Melissa's point, um, I, I remember, as I mentioned, we won a national championship when I was midget age, which is what is that? What do they call that? Like 16 U, I think. Yeah. And still, as I got into my 20s, it was still in the back of my head that, well, maybe that was a fluke or something. So um, I think if you can convince yourself, coach yourself that you're worthy of something, that you have a much better shot. You know, the people, the people say you have to see it before it'll happen. You have to believe it before, whatever. And I hope I'm I'm not overstepping here just with, with my background, but in, in thinking of the indigenous culture, I grew up with playing box across like six nations was as intense and as good. So I'm curious with your comment there about residential schools, which was awful. And thank you for sharing that you did, but maybe if there was more role models in volleyball, would you feel like that gap would have closed quicker for you? Like with box across, like I understand there's, there's a little bit of belief there that I think some people call it the creators game, right? So with, with me growing up in Ontario, like six nations is legit. Lyle Thompson is the best player in the world right now. And he's got an indigenous background. So is that maybe just uh, spotlighting the value of having role models in your sport that maybe if there was people before you, that you would have felt like volleyball is a thing for you or, or where would you stand on that? That's, you know, box across has, has tradition and history where maybe in volleyball, were you one of the, maybe the only indigenous guys on your club team or that you saw around playing? Um, yeah. I am, as far as I know, they've told me that I'm the first Indigenous male to play on the national team. Maybe that was, I mean, I don't know, because it, it, it didn't happen. But it, I, you know what? If there was an Indigenous dude on the national team when I was growing up, I would probably have idolized him for sure. Um, and maybe I would have. Well, I can't say I would have gone for it harder because I went for it real hard once I decided that's what I wanted to do. Hmm. My my role models in terms of sport growing up, what there's three guys that I looked up to. One, Jim Thorpe. Um, he was an Olympic athlete. He played professional baseball and football back in the day. And he like won gold medals at the Olympics in like borrowed shoes. Actually, shoes he found in garbage because someone stole his shoes that morning. Like the guy was incredible. I'm pretty sure the Olympics were in Sweden, and they told the king of Sweden was like, when when he gave him one of the medals, like you're the greatest athlete in the world. This is an indigenous dude, so I, I think of him often. Um, the second guy I think of is Bill Russell. He was uh, he played for the Celtics back in the day. He won more rings than he has fingers. And reading his books and whatnot, he was just as important. Well, he's just as important to me off the court as he was on the court. He's just such a great role model. The MVP award, the finals MVP award in the NBA is named the Bill Russell Award because he was the truth. And when people talk to me like, but, oh, is LeBron the greatest ever? First of all, that's garbage, not a chance. Bill Russell, in my mind, is the greatest basketball player of all time. I'd love to have that debate with people. Uh, and then the third guy is my father. As I mentioned, he went to residential school. Somehow, like he came from, came from the res, survived residential school, got a master's in education, taught for law, and then he went into law and started the, I believe it was called the Saskatchewan Indian Cultural College. 
at the University of Saskatchewan. So from where my father came to where he got, it's mind-blowing to me, considering what we talked about before, what had happened to his family for generations. Um, so those are, those are the guys that I looked up to. But if there was an, an Indigenous dude on the national team, I, I probably would have like had posters and stuff. Because I had posters of Paul Durden. That was my guy growing up. I don't know if you've met him. If you had him on the show? Uh, not yet. Not yet. I hope to. Yeah. He's, I love that too. Yeah, he's the guy I looked up to in terms of all that stuff. Nice, nice. So you're doing well in club. You're you're on a you're a provincial team guy. I think recruiting's definitely changed uh, with what kids experience now than maybe what you experienced. So when you look back, were you contacting schools? Were they contacting you? Did they go through your coach? Like, how do you remember post secondary becoming a serious option with you being either a, a good high school or a good club athlete? I remember one year when I was in high school on the provincial team, thinking, I was warming up, and I was holding a volleyball. I was like, Ooh, if I do this right, this ball is going to pay for my education, which was a crazy thing for me to realize. And then, okay, well, now I'm going for it a little more. You know? But growing up in Red Deer, uh, I was playing on the provincial team with guys that were a year older than me. And a lot of them decided to go to RDC. So when I was in grade 12, I would often go to Red Deer College practices to train with my friends and if they needed an extra player. And I think Keith Hansen, the god, that guy, now he's a coach. Man, he knows how to coach. He, uh, well, he knew what he was doing. You know, he just wants me around the guys. And I remember after a couple months of this, he said to me, uh, you know, if you're going to keep doing this, I need some sort of assurance that maybe you'll, you know, as you're considering Red Deer. I said, yeah, I'm totally coming, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. So that was basically my recruiting process into college. Sidebar, I primarily went to Red Deer College and U of A. Didn't get a scholarship at either of them. Uh, and I'm still super butthurt about that now that I'm a coach and I realized, oh, <laughs> why didn't I, what, what's the deal? Because I always grew up thinking if I deserved a scholarship, they would just offer me one. You know, I didn't realize that, oh, I should be asking, I guess. Um, but whatever, I got through school, it worked out. And in trying to do some research for the show, it sounds like you had a chance and you did go to BYU. So now I'm just doing the list here and you've played for provincial team guys like Sean Skye. You've played for Keith Hanson, Terry Daniluk. Was McGowan in charge of BYU when you were there? No, it was right after he left. If I'm honest, I do forget the coach's name that I wasn't there that long. Yeah, after my first year, sorry, during... My first year at Red Deer College, we actually went down to Utah to play BYU at Christmas. And it was wild. They're, the environment there, like they love volleyball, the gym, the fans. We played them two nights and we actually beat them the second night in five, which is wild. They were not expecting that. We're just some JUCO, they, they refer to us from Canada. We come out and beat BYU. And I'm pretty sure that year they may have won the NCAA championship or like they were in the final or something like that. And uh, just the environment. And they offered me a full scholarship. So I'm like, yeah, I'm going to take it. Here I go. And I went to BYU uh, the following year. 
what had happened is the summer before I went to BYU, I was playing on the junior national team and we had our world championship in Iran. Um, so we were traveling for, I don't know, I think over a month. And as like an 18 year old or 19 year old, I just wanted to go home at this point. Um, obviously as a pro, that's no problem. That's what you do. But we finally got back from Iran. We got stuck there for like, I think it was two weeks after the tournament because they wouldn't change our flights. So we're just like hanging out in Iran doing nothing because security is so tight, like we can't really go anywhere. Our players are getting sick from like the food and whatnot. It was pretty rough, you know, in our minds as kids, you know, because we're privileged community kids. We flew back that day, the day that we got back, that I got back to Red Deer, jumped in the car when my mother drove me straight to uh, Utah. And I was just so burnt at this point. Uh, and Utah is so different than what I had grown up with. Um, I just couldn't handle it. Like I needed a break or, or something. Um, so I lasted all 33 days. Um, but I came back to Red Deer College and got me into school like a couple days before the classes were like cut off or whatever. And uh, we had another good year. We won a national championship. And at, down at BYU, they were able to bring in a Dominican player named Victor Batista, who I actually became friends with because we played against each other for like a decade afterwards. And they brought him in and they won their national championship. So really it worked out for everybody. Nice, nice. And I think listeners who are fans of maybe an era before this one will recognize that Red Deer and U of A seem to have a partnership where it wasn't unusual for guys to go to Red Deer, do really well, and then go to the U of A afterwards. So was that pathway clear to you? Like, did you have any conversations with Terry about being recruited or, or did Keith kind of make it clear that if you want to play university, like here's your opportunity, speak to Terry and we'll make it happen? Because I think Brock Davidock did the same thing. I'm trying to like, there's, there's lists of names here, but uh, obviously a lot of national team guys have done this. So is it just clear that that's an opportunity for you or how does the, the change to go to U of A happen? I wouldn't say it was a, it was a clear pathway because uh, we had players who went to like UFC and other places, Trinity Western. You know? I made the choice. I remember I was with the national team in Winnipeg at this point and I made the choice one night when we were out with teammates and I think it was like a week before school started uh, and I told Leo Carroll, who was, went to U of A, he was the captain of the U of A, that I said, I'm going to come to U of A. I probably should have made that choice like five months earlier because I had nowhere to live. And uh, I went to some strange rest that really it didn't work out very well. But uh, yeah, that's how I made that choice. It wasn't necessarily that it was a direct pathway at all. Um, because as we just talked about, I went. To BYU, you know, like I, I, I work to go somewhere else. But in terms of like getting recruited in high school, I recorded some some whack VHS tape of like a game in high school, and I'm sure it was underwhelming. Um, and I sent it to UCLA because that's where I wanted to go, and I actually got hit back. The coach, the, what the assistant coach there at the time was John Sprague. 
don't know if you know the fella is, yeah. but uh, so he was, <laughs> so he's the current coach of UCLA and the national, the men's U.S. men's national team. Anyway, so he, his department, it was uh, recruiting and we went back and forth a little bit and they came up to Canada and went and saw them when they were playing in Canada. It seemed as though things were progressing and all of a sudden kind of just fell apart. Nobody was contacting me Like, okay, well, that's that. Looks like I'm going to go red here. So it turns out what happened is John Sprague got the job at, at uh, Irvine which is a school he went to and won like three national championships, basically. So it kind of makes sense that he wasn't helping with the recruiting at UCLA anymore. So John became the coach of the junior national team, the U.S. junior national team. So I actually saw him that summer. I'm like, hey, what kind of happened there? He had some, some reason, but he said, but if you ever want to come to the States, you let me know. But he was at Irvine at this point. We want to go to Irvine. I'm saying, although it all worked out again. Now he is, he's got a crazy career. Nice. And with you being back and forth from the national team, like you're saying, because you were involved at such a young age, did you ever feel there was a jump in level that whether it was being in the gym at BYU or being with the Red Deer guys or U of A, like, did you ever feel like, like you mentioned when you got into volleyball, the, the appeal of learning skills and getting really good and being challenged. Once you reached a certain point, was there always going to be like a step up from like club to college and then college university? Or did you feel like you belonged whatever gym you were in at that time? I don't know that I necessarily thought I belonged anywhere, but I was always ready to fight for it. Um, anybody who's been on the show who has older siblings would understand what I'm talking about, where if you grew up with another sibling who's older and they're athletic, or even if they're not athletic, you're constantly in competition. Like my older brother was the basketball guy in Red Deer, in my mind at least. I always wanted to be as good as him and all his friends. He was two years older. So it was just burnt into me from a young age to compete, uh, even if you weren't the best. You just go for it. Uh, so I think I generally always did play up. Um, I was never like, I think one summer I was with my age group, you know, but always playing up. And I, I, I kind of liked it that way. So you're always fighting. And then it feels even better if you get as good or better than people who are supposed to be at a higher level. you know. And for you walking into a volleyball Canada gym at this time, like I think today's a little bit different where I think of a, of a top club player walked in and they saw TJ or Gord or Shawan. Like I think because of the YouTube and Instagram era, they would recognize these guys and they might have a certain impression where I, I thought it was hilarious when we had Fred Winters on the show, he mentioned he wasn't that intimidated because he really didn't know the guys. Like he didn't grow up watching team Canada. They didn't play many games at home. So he didn't really know what was going on. Um, but for you to be a Durden fan, like when you walked in, was that maybe like a starstruck moment or were you kind of the same thing where kind of like, yeah, it's the national team, but uh, I don't really know these guys, so I'm not going to be intimidated or starstruck by these guys because just because they're on the national team, right? I think for Fred playing in the States, maybe he had four years of not really interacting or knowing much about Team Canada, but I scoured the primitive internet as much as I could for, for stuff on these guys. And, uh, I don't even know if Paul knows this, but like when I was 15, 14 or 15, whenever I started playing, I actually emailed Volleyball Canada 
about Paul. I don't even know what the email would have said, but I got back in the mail like a 12 by whatever uh, picture of Paul signed. So like I was always trying to get everything I could absorb everything about Team Canada and like coaches, like college coaches or, or like provincial team coaches would have VHS tapes of like World League and I would absorb those, you know, watch as much as I could. Because it's so much easier to learn something. You just see it, at least for me. If someone's trying to describe it. It can be tough. It's like trying to describe the wheel to a caveman who's never seen a wheel. You know, as soon as you see the wheel, it's like, oh, of course, that's the we should just do that. You know, so I was trying to see everything that I could. And I'm curious. Uh... That's, sorry, but stepping into the gym for the first time, I did pretty much know everybody. Like they didn't know me, but I knew who they were. And I think everybody has this story, the same story about meeting Paul Durden. He's go to shake his hand. And the thing, <laughs> it's like a gorilla hand, you know what I'm saying? Like, but he's the he's a super nice, fairly soft-spoken guy. So everybody, I think, for the most part, forgets whatever Paul said and is just focused on their hand disappearing. And when you go to U of A, I'm curious because you did well at Red Deer in your national championship. Like now as your coach, like at the time as a player, is that something you want to talk about? Like we're here to win a national championship. Like you talk about it every day. Is it something that's important because that U of A roster, like I'm trying to think back and I try to do research on the show. Like I think Brock was on that team. Was Cundy on that team? Alex Casayas, maybe like there was national team guys on your university team, right? Leo Carroll. And, uh, Adam Kaminsky, myself. So we had six national team guys, and I think there was more so long ago. And we, we had other guys that played pro. Well, we had Joel Schmulin, who was a national team guy. Uh, Thomas Yarma did a little bit with the national team. Um, I feel like such a jerk, no memory. But yes, right there, that's like nine dudes who were in the national team program. We had a good team, for sure. <laughs> I think, uh, well, my first year we lost. For some reason, we would just lose to UBC once uh, just because they really went for it. And then I don't think we lost a game other than that one. Um, yeah, we, we were really solid. We were really good. Like, is that a goal that you put on the whiteboard or the chalkboard or in the team room? Is that something that's important to everybody, that every day we're here to win a national championship? Or was it just about getting in the gym and battling and you guys were going to figure it out? If it was a goal, I don't remember it. Um, I think it was just understood that this is what we're doing. And if we don't win it, we messed up. You know, it's on us because we are the best. Actually, I remember telling Shula, Aaron Shula, there's another guy, the national team here. So we had at least 10 dudes. Let me do a sidebar real quick about Shula. Shula, I think, was the most important college or university player that I played with because he was the glue. Like he was, uh, I, don't know. I guess he was like the unsung hero, you know what I'm saying? Cause like his reception was always nice. Anytime we set him, he did something smart with it every single time. We need guys like that. Cause when I, when I played on teams that he wasn't on, it was a whole different, whole different game. So Shula, I think was the most important university player that I played with, even though I played with tons of national dudes. 
we were just talking about being on like a really good team and hopefully you're, you're okay talking about this, but, uh, the year you take a silver at Mac, what do you think happened there with just expectations and performance and everything that went into that season? Well, let me, let me finish what we were talking about before. And like, in terms of the goals or whatever, I remember, I don't actually remember this. Shula remembers this before the first national final. Uh, Shula asked if, if I was nervous or concerned because I wasn't. He said, why? And I said, because I look over at the team that we're playing and I think we're better than them at every position. So in theory, if we, if we play well, we should just beat them. That's how it should happen. And it did. It went to five. It was a great match. And we ended up winning. The next year, however, was very much different. Uh, it was Trinity's first national championship. Shouts to them. And holy crap, they smoked us so hard. I think the second set was like 25-6 or 25-8. Like, if anybody can find footage of this, I would love to rewatch this game. <laughs> like, we got some boat in three. And I think, looking back, a lot of our guys, we're, I mean, we're so, we might have been, you know, tight, a little bit tight because we've just been winning for years. And this is their fifth year. It's their last university game. If they don't win it, I don't know. So, like, I think it was a combination of this, the team I was on being really tight and Trinity playing incredible. They played so well that day. Um, so, shouts to them. And, like, I with playing professional and playing on the national team, I played with most, like, a lot of those Trinity guys. Sometimes that game does come up and my gosh, it still hurts so bad because they beat us so bad. What are you going to do? And we bring this up on the show a lot because I think it's important to remind fans that this isn't the norm. And when Steve Marr and Riley Barnes are getting big league contracts right out of U Sports or CIS, that wasn't really the case. So for you leaving Alberta, was FTC just something that made sense or that was the only way to do it? Like were many guys out of CIS going to Europe or, or to a pro club right away, or did everybody technically have to go to FTC to get like a look for the following season? No, not necessarily. I remember when I joined the national team, our top guys, our top six, seven guys, some of them were playing in like Denmark or some like not really not high level places. So that wasn't the norm at all. And it's due to Glen Hope building our program over the last 20 or so years. Like we had a team that we could field a certain amount of guys and hope to do well back in the day. Uh, and now it's a program where you can move, you know, 25 guys in and out and you're not going to suffer that much. And again, that's all, that's all Glen Hope. Sorry, what was the second part of the question? I was just curious uh, with FTC, like maybe what was important for you to go to an FTC? Like obviously take away the class component of university. So maybe you have more dedicated time, but what helped you maybe in that experience to go not only be with the senior A team, but uh, like going from FTC to maybe senior A, but also going from FTC to pro, like what does FTC do for some of these young athletes to get them ready? So I played or I went to the first FTC that they, that Glenn restarted since they, they used to do it in the eighties. And uh, the idea was to like bridge the gap between college ball and pro because it is so very different. 
And there was like five of us, I think. So we didn't play any games. We couldn't even field like half the court. So there was lots and lots of weightlifting, lots and lots of rep work. And uh, it was really tough. It's in Winnipeg, a cold, hard gym. I got stronger. I remember speaking to Brock one day actually about it after his his FTC year. He's like, they they played a five. We were we were in the Dominican Republic and we played a game. I went five sets. He's like, I feel like I could have played two more sets. And I remember saying to him, Well, is that the goal? Like, who cares? There's only one today, you know? So I did get much stronger. Uh, at FTC, but I didn't feel like I was getting better at all. So halfway through the year, we had the World Championship. And at the World Championship, I got an offer to go play in Poland. So I took that. And I remember in Japan at the World Championship, I told Glennis, he sat me down and said, well, there's going to be, this is your choice, but there's going to be consequences. Okay, let's see what that is. So I went and played this year in Poland, which is a whole thing. Uh, I was bad, but when I got back to the national team, I was back at the bottom, bottom, bottom because I had left the FTC. Uh, and we had World League that summer, and I wasn't on that roster. And they went through like eight dudes playing opposite, uh, which is fr- was frustrating for me sitting back home watching was like, that's my job, let me do it. Uh, but he felt he felt strongly that I had to pace um, a consequence for, for leaving the FTC. This does bother me now because the whole point, like dudes leave the FTC as soon as they can, which may go get contracts. But I guess the first, like, I don't know, they had ideas for it. Also, like when we all signed up to do the, F- the first FTC, Glenn was the coach. Uh, but it ended up being Chris Green, who's the assistant coach, who is a great coach. But we signed up planning to be coached by a legendary coach. You know what I mean? So I kind of wanted to leave. I don't know if that was the question. That's <laughs> what happened at my first FTC. No, that's great to hear because it reminds me, we've had TJ on the show a couple times and it's interesting to hear how much the program has matured and how much credit Glenn deserves. But TJ seems to remember there was an era that like he calls them the original seven, like a big dumb middle goes back and he misses and he float serves under the net. But at that time, nobody laughs because like Glenn's thinking you just missed a float serve. That means we're not going to win an Orsica medal this year, which means we're off pace to be like in the Olympics from eight years from now. And Glenn's trying to build this through guys mind. And I'm curious with where the program was. And like he said, some senior A guys are playing in Denmark or maybe for lack of a term, like lower leagues. Did you get this sense of urgency that like the plan, the wheels are spinning that even though like they're going to be willing to make you rot a year and not play worldly because they're going to need you in like six years. Like was the big plan clear to the athletes or were you just short-sighted being like, I left FTC. So now Glenn's mad. And now I have to sit like, what was this big long-term plan explained to the athletes? Or were you honestly feel like you were going day to day on some of this stuff? Well, I don't think it's a situation where they needed me six years from then because previously it had been me and Paul Durden on the roster all the time, the opposite. So, it, yeah, whatever his mindset was then to take me off the roster, I think it was just to show future players that if you sign up for the FTC, you committed to it. If you leave, there's repercussions, that sort of thing. And I get that. 
I'm not five years there now because like the world league Roth, like we suffered so much that summer. Uh, whatever. Sorry, can you repeat the second? I'm just curious, was the plan ever explained? Because to TJ's point, like when a, somebody misses a serve, like that's a problem because Glenn's got this plan to like beat Puerto Rico at North Seca this year. So then we can be at world league so we can win a medal. So we can go to the Olympics. Like, cause kids are a little bit spoiled watching our men's team play at the Olympics the last two cycles, where I think like that wasn't a thing during our era. Like I think 92 maybe, or, or before that, but uh, it, it wasn't a regular occurrence, right? No, not at all. Like it was a huge monkey on our backs, I guess you'd say, uh, knowing that the whole four years, it's the ultimate goal is to win that Olympic qualifier gold match. Um, so yeah, you, you do always have that in the back of your head, knowing what, what, your, what your goal is. And I'm, I'm curious with the roster, cause you mentioned it was you and Durden for a while and then Gavin Smith shows up. So I'm curious again with where the program is, but, and not to pump your tires too much just cause you're on the show, but with you and Gavin being two of our strongest players, was it ever frustrating that we couldn't find a way to get both of you on the court somehow? Because with two international quality right sides, it was just interesting to see how the team came together. Like, did anybody ever try to get one of you on the left or try to figure out a better double sub situation? Like with where Canada's depth was, we kind of needed both of you, but we could only take one, right? So we were in the gym one summer. Glenn explained it one day. He was, they, he was coaching in Europe and was playing against an Italian club. And the Italian coach is like, hey, I'd like to come see a program in the summer. He's like, sure. And then six months later, we were training in Gatineau. And these Italian coaches show up, like three of them, um, like legendary Italian coach. So he's observing practice. And I, I remember Glenn saying, I can't believe they actually came. Like there was no communication in the last six months, pretty much. And now they're here. Uh, anyways, they observed practice and uh, they saw that Gav and I were strong. And the Italian coach pitched this idea to Glenn of having both of us on the court. It's a very, it's a wild rotation, but I would receive for the most part. He would, Gav would mostly play right side but he would hit out of the middle in one rotation and then the captain at the time louis pierre mainville who played every position he would receive but also play middle and then swing right side one rotation like it was very interesting i could i don't remember how it all worked uh but we did this uh for a little bit one summer and that was the first time that i had ever beaten cuba playing this crazy rotation and having both Gavin and I on the court. And then we were going to keep doing this, but then like the day after we beat Cuba, I like wrecked my arm in practice. Like I ran into one of one of the players, one of the libero's. I was going for a free ball. It wasn't my ball. The libero came in, barreling in, like hyperextended one of my arms. So I was out for a while. So when we tried to go back to doing this system, it, it didn't work anywhere as well, which uh, I really think we should have stuck with that system because we had success and I think we could have had success, but it, it was such a stretch to come to like play internationally with this wild rotation. I think, uh, I think Glenn just uh, didn't trust it. It didn't trust me to, to do the job. Um, 
But yeah, that, that, that was the only time that we'd ever really had both of us on the court. There's, like you said, there's a couple of times with double subs or whatever, but uh, you know, it's disappointing because I like receiving. Like I did a season in China where I did receive, I played right side, but I received the whole time. And it's so much more fun. It's just more ball on. You know? And you get to hit pipes. I love hitting pipes. That's like probably my favorite thing in volleyball. I'm curious, were you just labeled as a left-handed guy or who would have been some of the left sides that you would have had to, to beat out? Because obviously to beat out a Fred Winters would be really challenging, but was was Tune the other left side? Like who were some other guys that maybe would have been receivers in your era? Yeah, Tone, uh, Fred, I think uh, Gordon might have been like baby Gord at this point, like just out of school. Um, who else would have been receiving at that point? Um, well, Cundy, Nick Cundy. Um, Jeez, I honestly forget. I've played with so many dudes on the <laughs> national team, I forget when they all fit in. Um, and Glenn actually did mention that before we started doing this rotation. Um, he, he said what amounted to, like, get some reps, get some passing reps, but don't uh, don't step over the left sides because it, it's going to be a huge shift once we do this emotionally, you know. So uh, I would try to get reps, but if one of the like the, the true left sides wanted reps, get out of it. You know what I mean? For sure, for sure. And, and again, credit to Fred Winters for sharing all that he did. I'm curious with you going through uh, like 11 years of pro. He mentioned he had like a, a process, and he would award points for certain categories, and that's how he would decide where he was going to play pro the next year. So for you, when you're deciding to go to Turkey, Russia, Italy, uh, somewhere in Asia, like what were some of the things that you would consider or weigh against each other so you would know like which contract was going to be the the best fit for you that season? I'm glad Fred said what he said. Because it is money. It's a job. And you just go wherever to do it. You're a mercenary. You know what I'm saying? So that that was pretty much the main deciding factor every single time. Pretty straightforward. Was there ever a, a league or a country that you were so uncomfortable with that you would take less not to play there? Like, did you enjoy your season in Russia? Or was there any country that you're kind of like, I just don't like the lifestyle. I don't like the food. I don't like anything about this. Like... Well, that's it. I didn't stay in Russia. It didn't work out. Like I went, okay, I went out of shape and that's on me. Like we had a big summer and then I took, I think two and a half weeks off. I literally just sat on my girlfriend's couch and ate pizza, um, which was so dumb. And then I go to Russia and the other opposite is maybe the best opposite in the world at the time, uh, Maxim Khailov. Um, and he had just come back from the Olympics and like went off as like, he was like 19 or 20 or something. And then I show up out of shape. I'm not good. Uh, I'm, yeah, it was, I was so bad. I get it. Um, the, the club's idea was to take Max, who's the opposite, put him on the left side, and then put me as opposite, and have us both on the court. But he wasn't the strongest receiver. It's not that he was bad, but he was young, you know. Receivers are the best when they're like 55 years old. Uh, and he's just so good at opposite that it's just a waste to have him there. So after like two months, me and the club both said like, hey, this isn't really working. I'm just, I'm, I'm ahead of So that's how that ended. Uh, but it seems like twice, the biggest contracts I signed, I left both times, which is so dumb. Um, 
but yeah, there there were there was situa- situations that I felt I had to take myself out of a couple times. Sorry, what was the other contract that you felt like you left early? Uh, I left uh, Turkey, signed a contract in Turkey, and uh, it was man, it's just depressed being there. And uh, I didn't. Yeah, there was many factors, and uh, I I left the team after I don't know, it wasn't that long, and tried to retire from volleyball, <laughs> and uh, it didn't work, obviously. Because I, I was off for like six months. I was exploring different things. Uh, different different uh, job prospects and whatnot. Then I'm in Ikea one day. Like buying pots or something. I'm with my girlfriend at the time. And I get a message on my phone. And it's from some whack-ass number that looks fake. And hi, my name is Dimi Yada Yada. I represent Allen Cultural Club. Like you to come play for one month, and uh, they show me. I'm like, look at this. Check this out. She's like, what? That seems fake. I'm like it probably is. So they said how much they wanted to offer me. I'm like, should I do this? Because I'm retired at this point, right? I haven't been playing volleyball. And she's like, well, do you want to? I'm like, not really. So I remember hearing a story. From one of the like the guys on the national team that played well before me, and he was trying to retire, or he was retired, and they were trying to bring him up. So what I said to this person on the phone is, "I will come for three times that amount," and then put the phone away. I'm like, okay, well that's that. And Ten minutes later, I said, "Miss, this is impossible. It's not possible for club. We can give you uh, double what we offer." So I'm like, "All right, well, okay, I'll go play in the Middle East for one month." And I'll make this pretty ridiculous amount of money. Uh, so I don't know if we bought the pots or whatever, but I took off and I like went and started doing some squats and whatnot. Then I went and played in the UAE for a month. It was a pretty wild experience. I, I got to know, did you ever make any other negotiations on some of these contracts? Were you a guy who got a, a translator or you wanted your own apartment? Like, was there any perks you ever asked for in a contract? No, I never really asked for anything extra. I think, well, one time, I think when I was playing in Korea, I asked for two extra flights so my parents could come. Uh, or maybe, I think what I may have done is they, they they had offered a return first class ticket. And I said, can I go economy and get two more so my parents can come? I think that's like, I am, okay. You got to know this about me. I am the worst negotiator. Like, and I know that about myself. And I think I get it from my dad. Because like I remember he was we were buying a truck one time or something and he was trading in his old truck. And as soon as we started talking about the old truck, he just started talking about everything that was wrong with it. Like it's probably not worth this much. And I'm like, ah, seeing my dad, I'm like, okay, I get it now. I'm awful at negotiating. So I, knowing that about yourself, that is that I mean, that's important because you need someone else to negotiate. Um, anyways. Yeah, I, I did negotiate a couple things. For example, after the one month in the UAE, which is, there's a lot of things that happened there. I'm about to go home. But I get a call from a buddy. He's like, hey, my old team in Indonesia needs a guy for one week just before their foreigner, their other foreigner shows up. All right, cool. I'll go do that. So I get in contact with them. And they're like, we'll give you this much. I'm like, Give me three times as much because like that just worked out for me. 
They're like, well, we can give you a little bit more. Screw it. I'll go to Indonesia for a week, you know? So I went around, I went home the other way around the world. <laughs> I went and played there for like a week. So yeah, that, 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 I think that that's really the only negotiating that I'd ever done my own. Nice, nice. And as you're progressing through like our school system, you go to the national team, you go play pro. Was there any point along your journey that you just, you love sports so much that you wanted to get into coaching or when did this become like a career option for you that you said, like, I want to stay involved in sport and coaching's the most uh, appealing thing to me right now. I think studying my coaches, I had so many good coaches coming up. I was super lucky. Had some tremendously garbage pro coaches, but even like a garbage coach, you can learn from them. Sometimes it's learn what not to do. So I think studying coaches, I, I, I was trying to figure out what I would take, what I would use, what I wouldn't use. Um, so if I ever got to coaching, that's what I would do if I became a head coach. Um, and it just seemed natural when I stopped playing, when I got injured and whatnot. Uh, I had done four years, two years at RDC, two at U of A. And I needed to finish the degree because I left early. I left school early. I didn't graduate. My whole thought was like, my knees are going to explode. My body's going to explode at some point. I'd rather have an extra year on the end. You're making more. Because school's always going to be there. You know what I mean? So that's kind of what I did. I, Jamie and I, my wife, shouts to her, we decided to settle in Calgary. UFC is here. I spoke to the coach. I'm like, hey, if you help me get into school, I'll help us as we coach the team. Um, and it made sense because I'd been playing volleyball for so long. That you essentially, after you play that one, you have a master's degree in high-level volleyball. So, like, that's my knowledge. Maybe I'll just you know, pass it on to the, the next generation as much as I can. That's how I got into that. And, and hearing you listen uh, about your role, mo- role models and understanding, like, Bill Russell, so it seems like you're a big sports fan. I'm curious where your thoughts are on, like, sometimes good players do not actually make good coaches like the Wayne Gretzky example and some other people. So I'm curious how you've solved this battle. Cause like you said, yeah, you've got a ton of experience. you understand technical tactical way more than the, the average person does. But does that mean you have to work hard on communicating or, or learning styles or skill acquisition? Like what's helped you with that bridge? Because I think anecdotally, there's been a lot of great coaches or excuse me, great players who did not, you know, transfer to a very good coach. Well, I think it's just, as you pointed out, communication, I'm not the best coach, but I try to communicate clearly and efficiently. Well, try not to waste words. And I often find myself wasting words when I'm talking to my players. And I'll just basically shut up. It's like the message is already out there. There's no more need. I thought when I was playing that I was going to be, that I could be a good coach because I'm not a savant. You know, I'm not Gretzky or Jordan. Like these guys were not good coaches because, or, or Magic Johnson, because it was just like, as you said, they'd be like, why, they would say to players, like, why can't you, why aren't you seeing that? The players essentially, because I'm not you, you know what I mean? Uh, I, like, this is the wild flex, but I thought of myself more like Phil Jackson in the sense that I played at a really high level, but I had to work so hard to get there and more workhorsey than superstar, you know what I mean? So that I'm, I, I think it is true that I, I do understand the game because I had to work hard at things. It didn't necessarily just come. 
And has anything popped out in your studies? Like you mentioned, like optimal performance state, or maybe you're really into planning, or maybe you're into like skill acquisition and motor learning. Like, is there anything through the courses you've taken that like you're really fired up to transfer like your knowledge as a player to a coach that like th this course or this project was like really enjoyable? The game is easy in my mind, just because like it's second nature at this point. It's the planning that I really struggle with. So last year, over this last year, I took a graduate certificate course from UBC in high performance coaching. And it's like technical leadership or something like that. And the whole reason I took that uh, program was so I could learn to do like yearly plans properly. Because like I said, I get the game. It can, can help tweak things pretty easily. I think in my mind, it's like the, I didn't realize how much administration work there is being a head coach. This is not for me. Like I'm dyslexic. I dyscalculia, dysgraphia. So like all ways of Western learning, I'm just terrible at it. Like I have to work really hard at it. Uh, so I think that's why I'm, I'm, I'm good in the gym, but I have to work really hard to like plan stuff out for like a year or so. But I have that skill now somewhat. So I'm glad I took that, uh, that graduate certificate. And um, I, look, I hope to like implement that with my state team this year. And I'm curious, again, with your playing experience, whether it was Glenn or another great coach you've had, that was there ever a light bulb moment where you're kind of like, oh, we didn't taper for that game against you know, ABC because they were easier, but I felt like our lifts changed right before this game. Like, Was there anything you could look back and be like, oh, that was a peak for us and this was like this was manipulated, this was manufactured, like that didn't happen by accident that we were really good because like, I think that is the value of planning is every once in a while something clicks and you go, we, we made that happen. Yeah, pretty much the entire time playing for Glenn. He comes from a, a science background, so he approaches everything that way. And I remember when early on when he had first started coaching the team, we were... He was in Quebec and I was in France and he showed me like the year plan that he was working on. And it was on paper, but it was like, you can't really see because again, this is a podcast, but the paper was like two meters long. So he was planning like years ahead at this point. So tapering and volume loads was always very well monitored uh, or, or planned out. I don't know if it was with well monitored all the time, but it was always really well planned out by Glenn and his team. Awesome. Awesome. And the other league I wanted to ask you about, because uh, Jaron Mueller brought you up on his episode, he was mentioning uh, you were great to be around the one volleyball league. I believe it's called the Canadian Volleyball League now, but you guys had a great season. What did you enjoy about working with athletes of that age, right? Because it's not a college season. It's people who have full-time jobs and they, they love volleyball, but you still want to feel like you want to help them and coach them up. So what was it involved like being in, in a passion project, but also a high performance league that way? Well, initially, like. My wife, Jamie Sunyas now, but she was Jamie Tebow. She played on the national team for seven years and she retired early because it's my fault, basically. Like, I retire, so she's like, well, I'll retire with her. She is still so good. She's so smart. Uh, she played middle. So when this idea of a league came up, the mechanics in my head started, you know, the wheels started going. Like, all right, this is in Calgary. I have a buddy who owns a brewery. 
He's really supportive. He's also an additional, so he's going to want to jump on this. I'll coach the team. We'll get Jamie in the first round. We'll win a championship. It'll be fun. And that was that. That was the pitch to my man to buy a team. The first couple days in the first game, I realized I'm coaching this like an international men's coach, i.e. I'm like yelling at girls because that's just what's been happening to me for the last couple of years. And it did not work. We lost the first four games. Um, and I realized, okay, I am messing up. I'm ruining this for these gals. So I did a bunch of research and I told the girls about this. So they make fun of me for it, but like how to coach women opposed to coach men, because it is very, very different. So I changed the way I coached. The gals responded much better. I learned a lot about uh, the differences between coaching young men and young women. The takeaway from what I, from the articles I read, um, was young women, you know, a, a team of any sport really for young women is like a web, whereas everybody's connected and everybody needs to be good or the web's going to fall apart. Whereas young men, it's a ladder, it's a hierarchy. Everyone needs to know where they fit in that hierarchy and it's constantly shuffling, you know? So once I started treating the team more like a web, we got much better. Also, we changed some we changed some gals in some positions, and then we want every game to start crushing everyone. So I really do like coaching young women. They listen way more than young dudes. Young dudes are like, nah, I got it, whatever. I am the best player that they play. You know what I mean? Can you um, give an example yes, of what this what this web looks like? Because I think coaches are perking up where I think in volleyball, it's more the same than it is different. But again, friend of the show, Becky Pavin mentioned that, you know, at the surface level, men and women are different. So I don't think it's, you know, this offside thing to say that you should coach them different, right? So when you're talking about this web, does that mean you're wanting to give more autonomy? Like they get more of a say, like, what are some things to make this, like, add some actionable items to this, this concept you had? I think I needed to make sure everybody was okay. Uh, with the men's team, you don't have to do that as much. It's like, this is the goal, freaking get it done. Whereas with the women, you need to make sure everybody is in a good place and then they feel comfortable competing. Uh, I was also really encouraging the gals to be direct and concise with each other on the floor. I find I often see women's teams, uh, college or university teams in Canada, where they'll lose a point, they'll all come together, they will all just nod at each other like, we're okay. This is fine. This is totally fine. And then nothing will change. And they'll lose the next point again and again. Is this the same error? So I th it was so lucky to have players like Jamie and like uh, Amanda Moppet Beach. Who, they're very experienced pro players that they're direct. They're showing these young gals that it's fine to be direct. Nobody's has beef with each other. We're just trying to solve the problem at this point. So it doesn't happen again, uh, opposed to just coming in the middle and be like, we're okay, this, everything's okay, you know? And I think that's part of the reason why we did well uh, as well. And I am curious because of your playing style, are you just more aware of how people carry themselves on the court? Because like you said, you found like your optimal performance state, like when you are coaching a younger male or younger female, 
do you just have more empathy for them or do you try to guide them to having like more joy and having like true emotions versus somebody who just wants to be like laser focused and thinks they have to be serious all the time? Like, is there any pressure from you to kind of coach the way you wanted to behave or are you trying to find people to let, if they want to be the super serious, no joking person, like, is there freedom for that in your gym? Like, where do you find the balance when you're trying to help an athlete versus this worked for you? So you want to encourage it for them. You know, I don't know. You'd have to ask the athletes. Because I feel like they would have different opinions. And certainly the fellas versus the gals that I've coached, they would have different opinions as well. Because I, you, you, have, you don't have to, but I coach them differently. Um, and I'm not trying to recreate myself. What matters is the numbers. Are you efficient? And for each player, that's so different. Like what, are you gonna, what do you have to do to get this player as efficient as possible? Like that's who I'm going to put on the floor. Pretty sure that's every coach. For sure. Does that efficiency, is that a Glenn Hogism? Like, are you a big plus minus guy? Are you a big uh, tactics guy? Like when you mentioned your U of A teammate, who's so smart with the ball, like, is that maybe some tactical stuff you really value? Well, I think as you progress in the game, you understand the importance of bettering the ball. I think just once you, like as a dude, once you hit 26 or 27, your mind actually changes. Like the chemicals and hormone composition is different. You're not so, I'm going to crush every single ball, even though you know maybe I should take this. Like it's animalistic, you know what I mean? But once you reach that age, you're able to make choices better. Um, that's the sort of stuff you, that's so hard to teach young men. I don't know if that answers the question. No, no, for sure. And, and I'm just looking at the clock. I know uh, you're a busy guy and I've taken a big chunk of your afternoon, but I was hoping you could share one more story with us. We've made a tradition on the show that uh, you've played at the highest level of our coach or of our sport. You're coaching at a high level, but something odd or funny must have happened along the way. So I was hoping you could share one more laugh before we let you go. There's honestly so much ridiculousness that goes on in pro volleyball. They, I mean, when I started, they say pro, but like... Sometimes stuff is not pro at all. Uh, but one thing that I thought about when we were talking about playing, when I went, the first time I went to the Middle East, I showed up there and I'm ready to practice, ready to play. And they're like, no, 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 three weeks from now. Like, yeah, yeah, we, we're, we're going to a tournament, Saudi Arabia. That's when you're playing. Oh, okay. So I just like followed the team around in the UAE for three weeks to their practices and games. And they were the league games and I wasn't allowed to play in those. So I just kind of kicked it in like Dubai and other cities in that small country for a couple of weeks. We go to this tournament in Riyadh in the Saudi Arabia. They give us these enormous winter coats before we leave and like tubes and gloves. I'm like, what is this for? They're like, we're going to Saudi Arabia. It's cold there. What are you talking about? It's like, is it not a desert? So I guess for people from the UAE, Saudi Arabia is like cold in some parts of the year. You get there. We get to Riyadh. We play this tournament. And we play the pool play. Um, and we lose our last match. So we get on a plane the next day and we fly back to the UAE. And when we get there, the guys are opening the papers and they're laughing. I'm like, what's going on? And they're like saying in the papers, like, where is Alain? That was the team I was on. Like, they made the playoffs and they took off. <laughs> so, like, I do remember 
in that final pool play game, looking at the bench and some of the teammates were out there with like the wild pen and paper, like doing math. Like, what do we need to do to like move on? And I guess their math was wrong. It was like, <laughs> we moved on. And like, that was that. I got, I'm like, okay, well, I guess we're done. I'm out of here. You know? As a competitive guy, did that just not drive you crazy when you found out you were still in this event? Well, like, so are we going to fly back? And they're like, no, the game was today. So, like, <laughs> that was that. Uh, and that tournament was done. I'm like, all right, well, peace, I guess. And then I went to Indonesia and, like, did that. That was it. So, <laughs> there's, there's, like, many, many stories of just crazy stuff where you think of professional sports. As well. Like, it, Professional volleyball, it's getting better now, but it's so different than the big four North American sports. Like, there's clubs that owe me so much money that I'll never see uh, just because that's the way it is. It, it's like the Wild West. We're literally immersive here. Like, what would the process be? I think the FIV maybe puts them in bad standing, but that doesn't get you anywhere. Like, you're, you're literally out of money right now? No, no, no. That, that does get you somewhere now because they can't transfer international players. And, Clubs need international players that like they're blocked from. So they would only, they'd probably be allowed to compete, but only with their local players. Uh, so that has gotten people places, but that wasn't in place the entire time that I was playing. So there's clubs that, like some shady, or sorry, not Italian, pardon me, uh, shady Spanish clubs. And I'll call them out right now Almeria in uh, Unicaja, Almeria. Don't go there because, like, everybody I played with, and I'm pretty sure the year before and the year after, like they're owed like tens of thousands of dollars, like shadiness there. Like don't go there. Let me think where else has we moved. There's a club in Puerto Rico that's folded. Like they, like that's never good. There will never be money there. That was a super depressing year because like my shoulder blew up and then they're like, uh, you owe us like 20 grand. What are you talking about? Like I'm out for a year. I can't make money. My shoulder's busted. I'm alone. And you want this money? So I like, it was, oh, there's many crazy things that have happened to me. Let me think, who else owes me a bunch of money? <laughs> there's places. Yeah, sorry, I know we're over time. No, that's fine, because even just by doing the show, I'm learning that uh, Gavin mentioned in one of his clubs, they were paid in cash. So here you are, the trainer hands you a wad of cash and you're like on a bench counting it, hoping it's all there. Like it's pretty, like you said, it's not professional in terms of the big four. It's, it's pretty sketchy in some areas. So check it. I'm in China. I signed my contract or no, we're negotiating the contract. And I'm like, Hey, sorry. Do you have, I don't know how much time. Oh, I'm good. Yeah. Okay. So I'm in China negotiating the contract. And this one, I guess I kind of, I did myself. I'm like, oh, I'm going to need like 30,000 more or something. I don't know. Throwing numbers out. And it was a very strange response. The, the club representative, quote unquote, was like, okay, we can give you that. But at the end of the season, you need to pay me 10,000 of the 30. I'm like, huh. Maybe something's lost in translation, but I'm down with that. Whatever. Go to China. Play the year. Turns out this was like the translator. He's not really part of the club. He translated that knowing that the club wouldn't know. And he's just skimming $10,000 off the top. So in the end, I paid him like eight or something because there was so many things that happened that year. Like I got 
stuck in Hong Kong, which isn't technically mainland China, and I couldn't get back into mainland China. This was his fault because he had got us visas that were single entry and not multiple entry. So like myself and the other foreign player, after we took a break in Hong Kong for five days, we go to the airport and we're like, no, you can't go to China. So like we had to figure this out and this cost thousands of dollars because we were stuck in Hong Kong. Uh, so I did pay him less than the 10 grand. Also, when we were there in China, we got paid the shadiest way I'd ever been paid. Apparently, you can only be paid a certain amount of money through a bank account. So the way they got around this was all the local Chinese players, they all open bank accounts. So the club would pay these these local players to their private personal accounts, and then they would transfer all that money to my personal account. You know what I mean? So like, I don't know, 14, 14 dudes didn't take them long to put the math together to know how much I was getting paid. Like, it's just weird stuff. Like, and I felt terrible because these Chinese players work so hard and they don't get paid like much of anything. Like they live in dorms and like food is provided for them, but like the life is really hard for them. And then they have this thrown in their face that this dude shows up and he's getting paid this. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was awkward (laughs) to say the least. And it just, to me, it creates an environment where they could skim off the top. And then like, how does that money get found? Right. Because they're technically the middleman, right? True. But I think like the club, made sure like the club would handle the bank transfers. Like I remember seeing players hand their bank cards to like guys, like, like the translator guy, I'm pretty sure like wild stuff. But I think I got paid pretty much everything. Yeah. Lots of, lots of crazy stuff happened. Um, Yeah. And is like when you look back, is it is it the agent's role to step in, or did you feel as a player like you were the one fighting for this? Like, are agents aware that certain leagues are like when you say don't go to this club in Spain? Like, are most agents have that same impression on their radar that they're like, "Hey, man, here's an offer. I'm obligated to show you, but you're you're not taking this because of our experience with this club or this manager." Yeah, that I think that has happened in the past. It depends on your agent. If your agent is like quote unquote honorable, but. I have heard it said that to be a good agent, you have to be super shady, really. Um, for example, my one of my first contracts, I really wanted to go to Paris, Bali, and I guess they were interested, but I didn't go because they had owed previous players from this agency money. Um, so that's a situation where I didn't go someplace because the club was quote-unquote shady. I don't know if Paris, Bali still owes these players money, but whatever. But I went to Unicaja Almeria, and I think they were known to be shaken. So I don't know how I ended up there. Uh, I think often agents, they get their agency fee right away. It's not like the end of the year they get their agency fee. So they're taken care of. Um, yeah, but there, there was, there's been messy situations with, with clubs where I'm like telling my agent, like, I can't work with you anymore. This is like the third year in a row that this has happened. They're like, well, you know, the club, yada, yada, yada. We know them, we trust them. Why? I'm not getting money. 
Like I remember in Montpellier in France, that I think they still might only a, a small amount, but like it was halfway through the next year where I said something convincing enough, incriminating enough, like that they sent me like twenty five grand that they had owed me. Like it's I don't mind talking about this stuff because I'm out of that world, but like it was very shady for at least the the majority of my pro career. But then you you got the flip side where like playing in Korea, those that those corporate their corporations, they are very much by the book. You can get everything done properly. Uh, it's really where you go. Well, man, this has been awesome. It sounds like we we still have lots of stories to tell, so we'll have to get you on for a second time. But I know you're you're a busy guy. You and Jamie have a little one running around that I'm sure you got to go be a dad for the rest of the afternoon. So thanks for all your patience and getting this booked. And thanks for finally coming on the show. It's my fault for the late invite, but I'm glad you could finally work it into your schedule. I feel so thankful I've talked. I hope it, I feel like, like you said, there's so many stories. Like the stories, as you said, are the fun part. But uh, I don't know if we do it again. We'll get into the stories first. Definitely, definitely. Well, thanks again and enjoy the rest of your day.